And we're going to be starting in John 1. We're going through the life of Jesus up close and personal in the scriptures. I don't know if you've noticed, but almost everybody has an opinion of Jesus. Everybody has an opinion. He's the central figure in history. He divides all of history literally into before Christ and Anno Domine, the year of our Lord, A.D., Jesus is the most polarizing figure in all of history. He's the author of the best-selling book, By a Mile. He laid the foundation for most of the world's legal systems and governments. There's no denying the impact of Jesus on the world. And everybody has an idea about who Jesus is. But we're going to dig into this question today of who is Jesus really? Who is he really? Last week, we looked at the family tree of Jesus and how he chose to graft in messed up people with messed up lives. He chose to associate with them instead of perfect people who live near flawless lives. He's got scandals in his history, and every scandal points to a life that he redeemed and made new. Jesus was redeeming people before he even came to the earth, and that work continues today. So John, as he opens his gospel, doesn't want there to be any confusion on this subject. At the very, very beginning of the book of John, John is proclaiming with strength, you need to understand that this man I'm telling you about, Jesus Christ, is God. He's God. That's the entire point of the gospel of John, is the divinity of Jesus Christ. He's writing the book to make the point, Jesus is God. That's his testimony. And so John 1.1 starts out with something we read a few weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. If you're into underlining, you're going to want to underline that. With God, and the Word was God. You're going to want to underline that too. He was in the beginning with God. We talked about in our foundation series on the Bible how, how incredibly neat it is that the title that's given to Jesus is the Word. And we talked about how The Bible, the Word, is literally authored by Jesus through men, and it is an extension of Jesus like a limb. And when you commune with the Bible, when you spend time in the Bible, you are spending time with Jesus. It's a direct reflection of who he is. But there's a whole other side to this first verse where John starts out by referring to Jesus as the Word. And at that time, there was a Greek philosophical idea called logos, which is the Greek word he's using there when he says word, logos. And logos was a philosophy most popularly articulated by Plato. And what Plato said was, we can conceive of this idea of perfection. And philosophers began to ask the question, how can we conceive of perfection when it does not exist in the known universe? And they began to sort of banter around this idea philosophically. How can we conceive of something in our minds that doesn't exist? Where does that idea come from? And so what they posited was that that perfection must exist somewhere out there, somewhere in the universe, somewhere in another dimension. There must be perfection, and what we see must be a reflection of that perfection, kind of like looking in, in, a, in a cloudy mirror. The idea is that we're looking in a cloudy mirror, and perfection is behind us. So we see things that are close to perfection. We see beauty. We can appreciate artistry, but we don't see perfection, but we can conceive of perfection. So it must exist somewhere. It's actually a pretty brilliant philosophical idea and stands to good reason. And that's why later on in the New Testament, Paul would write things like, for now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see in full. He's referring again to this logos idea. And I love it because right off the bat, 
John goes into something that is mind-blowing. Six words in, the first six words in the Gospel of John. He says, let me tell you who that perfection, that logos is. And he says, in the beginning was the word, logos. He says, this idea that you have perfection existed in the beginning. Here's where it starts getting crazy. The beginning of what? The beginning of anything, everything. The beginning of humanity, the beginning of the earth, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of time, the beginning of reality. He says, go back as far as you want, and when you get there, Jesus will be there, already existing. And this is what I want us to get. Do you understand that as human beings, we cannot actually comprehend that statement? We are incapable of grasping the idea of anything that doesn't have a beginning, that doesn't have a genesis. We, we all like, yeah, yeah, I get, none of us get it. Let's just be honest. None of us get it. We're not mentally capable of grasping something without a beginning. But John begins by saying, go back as far as you want. There's Jesus. You're like, oh, I finally made it to the beginning. Jesus is there. What's up? Already here. I was already here the whole time. Jesus is there at the beginning. And that's the first thing that John wants us to know. He wants us to know Jesus is there from the beginning. And it's kind of like John says, just so you understand, we're dealing with God. If you're interested in that idea, keep reading. If you're not interested in that, or you're looking for a God that you can completely understand, maybe you should put this book down and go read something else. But we're dealing with God. And if you're expecting a God that you can match intellectual wits with, then let me suggest you're not looking for God. You're not looking for God. And so John opens up six words in, and it's already beyond our comprehension. Six words in. I love what Jesus says in John eight fifty eight. This is not a grammatical error. This is not b- bad use of tense in the English language. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus is saying is he says, pick any point in time and I am there now. I'm there now. He's not even on the line of history. We grasp time in a linear sense like a line. God is not on that line. He's not on that line. He's off the line looking at the entire line all of the time. That's where God is. Your mind should be going like... See a little bit of smoke coming out of everybody's ears. Like, does not compute. He is off the line. That's the best way I can explain it. He's looking at all of history, all of the future, all the time. That's why when God makes prophecies, he's like, it's no big deal for me to prophesy the future. I'm looking at it right now. Right now. He's going to wear a blue shirt. I'll call it. Right. I'm looking at it right now. God is off the line of history. So his first statement is this, and this is your first fill-in. Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. He's without beginning. He is without end. And then his second statement in first one is, and the word was God. And the statement there is quite simply, Jesus is God. That's your second fill-in. Jesus is God. John just gets right to the point. He's not trying to win anybody over. He's saying, if you're looking for God... I can tell you about him. If you're not, put the book down because you're not ready for this. You're not ready to handle this. This idea that Jesus is God, the divinity of Christ, is the dividing line between everything that is Christian and everything that is not. This is something huge every believer needs to understand. The dividing line is the divinity of Jesus Christ. 
So when we say, well, couldn't all religions lead to God? Islam does not believe that Jesus is God. He believes he's a prophet in the order of Muhammad, but lower than Muhammad. The Krishnas believe Jesus is an enlightened being like Krishna, but he's not God. Buddhists believe he was a great teacher, but not as good as the Buddha. Whatever other religion you have, they might recognize Jesus' existence, but they do not recognize him as God. That's the dividing line that defines everything that's Christian and everything that is not. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they have different beliefs about Jesus, that Jesus is the brother of Satan, he's an a- or he's an angel in the order of Michael, but he's not God. That's the dividing line. That's the dividing line, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And it's hugely problematic if you try to make Jesus into anything else. Because if you say he was a great teacher, well, that's not what he said. He said he was God. He said he was God. He had people worship him as God. If that's not true, that's not a good teacher. That's a pretty bad teacher. That's like a teacher who says, hey, kids, here's some scissors. Go running. It's not a good teacher who tells you to build your life on a lie. He's not a good teacher if he's delusional. He's mad. He's not a good teacher. You can't be like, yeah, he's out of his mind. But he says some really cool stuff. It doesn't work. There's a huge problem because Jesus doesn't let us off the hook if we want to make him anything less than God. He has to become a liar. He has to become delusional. He has to become something else. And we're confronted again and again with this hard question. Jesus says, I'm God. John says, Jesus is God. This is the question we have to address when it comes to our opinion of who Jesus is. The third statement is found in verse 2. It says, he was in the beginning with God. Okay, let's just take a deep breath. Your mind's going to get blown again here. So we're saying, wait, wait, wait. So, okay, so he's God. But he, he was also with God. Yeah, yeah. What he's referring to here is the doctrine known as the Trinity, the idea that God is one being with three unique personalities and identity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They speak as one. They function in perfect unity. It's perfect harmony among them. They have different functions, but they're all one. If anyone here says, yeah, man, I totally get the Trinity, you're lying. Nobody gets the Trinity. Nobody gets the Trinity, right? We, we read it. We're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I, that, that makes sense. Everybody else is nodding, so sure, I, yeah, sure, I get it. <laughs> Trinity presents concepts that, again, are beyond our ability to comprehend and grasp. Saying the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover doesn't make us understand the Trinity, right? <laughs> it makes us understand we got, a le- we got like a leaf here with like three things on it. Cool, do you understand the Trinity? No, I don't. <laughs> Even though you gave me a leaf, I don't get the Trinity. Trinity's kind of, kind of beyond our comprehension. And it might be a good time to, to once again remind ourselves that we're dealing with God. We're dealing with God. And, and I think the truth is that God is really indulging us by even letting us know things like the Trinity exists. He's really indulging us because he's, you know, it's like a kid, when, when one of my kids hears me talking with Charlene about something, it's like, tell me what you're talking about. We know that they can't even understand what we're talking about, but we just indulge them and be like, oh, you know, we were just talking about, you know, the cultural shifts of conservatism versus social liberty. When we do that, it's like, we're, we're just indulging our children and our children go, okay, can I have a freezy? You know, 
We're indulging our children. We know they can't understand some of the stuff when God says like, hey, before Abraham was, I am. He's just indulging us is what he's doing. He's like, and we're like, oh, I get it. He's like, oh, so cute. So cute. Look at you guys understanding the Trinity. You guys are, you guys crack me up. You're so cute. That's what God is doing. He's, in, he's indulging us with some of this doctrine. And, and, I, and I want to encourage you that, that we are all finite man trying to understand an infinite God. If you have a problem with that, let me be serious. You are not seeking God. If you will reject God because he's not like you, think about that. You're going to reject God because you can't understand him. Of course you can't. He's God. If you want someone you can understand to make you feel good about yourself, you need to follow a human being because maybe you can match wits with them. Maybe you can be intellectual equals. We will never be intellectual equals with God. He's God. We shouldn't be surprised that we run into concepts that our minds can't wrap around. We're finite men trying to understand an infinite God. None of us even know everything that finite man knows, right? We're not even, not even close. Like my electronic toothbrush breaks. It's like, well, this is the end of my intellectual capacity. I'll go buy another toothbrush, you know? And my wife says, like, did you try checking the batteries? It's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm a genius. If my toothbrush breaks, I, I can't fix it. Now, you might say, I'm kind of handy. I could probably fix the toothbrush. It's like, okay, great. Can you then, after fixing the toothbrush, go and perform heart surgery on a baby that's still in the womb of its mother? Anybody here able to do that? Because we seriously need to be friends. That would be awesome. But none of us can do that. None of us are even close to knowing everything that man knows. We are insane if we are frustrated that we don't know the same things God knows, that we can't think like God. There's a side of this where you've got to say, man, he, he's God. He is gracious in letting me even have a glimpse of him, letting me have a moment where I, all I can say is, man, he's God. And the more I study God, the more I realize that, that, that there are some doctrines and some pieces of information about God where the most reverent and honoring thing I can do is say, I don't know. I don't understand. And in some ways, that's more worshipful than trying to come up with a cheap illustration and pretend I understand something I don't know. Sometimes it's more worshipful to say, I don't know. I just know it's true. I know he's God, and I know one day I'm going to see in full. I won't be looking in a dim mirror anymore. I'll see God, and I'll understand, and I'll know. He's the infinite, infinite God. The Apostle Paul is probably the most brilliant theologian ever. One of the other disciples sort of writes later on to a church and says, I I hear you guys are reading the letters of Paul. You have fun with that. Paul was considered even by his contemporaries to be somebody who was just brilliant. He's just brilliant, thinking on a whole another level. If you sit down and read one of his epistles, like one of his letters in the New Testament, you might make it through chapter one and then very quickly, you just got to stop because your brain can't comprehend what he's saying. He's moving that quickly. It's like mind-blowing thought, deep concept, question explaining the nature of humanity and reality. Verse four, you know, like that's how Paul writes. You're like, oh my gosh, you know. You're like, it was your devotional today. Three verses. It was Paul. Oh, I understand. It was Paul. But even the great Paul said this about the mysteries of God in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, and without controversy, like there's no debate about this. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, 
seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And Paul says, I think there's something we can all agree on. This is a great mystery, how this all happened, why it happened. I mean, when you, when you think about it, can any of us really come up with a reason that makes sense why the Father would even send the Son? Like, why? Like, for us? The gospel doesn't even make sense when you really begin to look at it. Like God was lacking something without us. He's lacking nothing without us. And what you find is that the kindness of God and the goodness of God goes beyond reason when you really begin to think about it. We can never fully grasp God. I love what J.B. Phillips says. He says, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. I love that statement. He wouldn't be big enough to worship. So Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. And thirdly, this is on your outlines, Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's part of the Trinity. And moving to verse 3, we read this. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John's making a fourth statement here, and the statement is Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him. Jesus is the creator. In verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John's saying that Jesus was and is the source of all life. Spiritual and physical, it all has its origins in Jesus. Jesus Christ is in the creation of life, and Jesus Christ is the way to eternal life. Jesus is life, that's what he's saying. I love verse 5 because it puts the creation story in perfect parallel with the gospel. John is saying, this is what happened at creation, and this is what happened when Jesus came to earth as a man. It's verse 5. It says, and the light shines in the darkness... And the darkness did not overcome it. Didn't overcome it. Your, verses, your Bibles might say comprehend. The real meaning of the word there is overcome. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Just as there was darkness at the beginning of time, God spoke, light overcame the darkness just with a word from the mouth of Jesus in creation. It says Jesus came into the world. He was the light and he overcame the darkness. That's what John's saying in verse 5. So he's established that the subject of his gospel, Jesus Christ, was and is the eternal God. And John has to do this because Jesus being God is what gives the incarnation its gravity. Jesus being God is what makes it so amazing that he came as a man. If Jesus is just a man, it's not amazing he was born as a man. Of course he was. He was a man. If Jesus is God, being born as a man is is mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. It's scandalous. And this is what it says in verse 14. It says, And the Word, this logos, this perfection we've been talking about, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's a juxtaposition going on here intentionally. What John is doing is he's saying, here are three or four things about God that you can't even understand. Just so that in your minds, you start realizing that he's a big God. He's a great God. He says, now that God, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. 
When I, when I was reading this at verse 14, I just stopped at verse 14. And I just wept because it was messing me up that much that that God, not... Because we sometimes think of Jesus as though he's always a guy and he just teleported down here to earth. But he's God. He's God. He, he has no beginning. He has no end. He exists across multiple dimensions that we don't even understand or even know about. He created every single thing that exists, and it only exists now because he says exist. He destroyed all in an instant. That God came, and he dwelt among us. Among us. Here. And we beheld his glory. He revealed himself to us, and he says, that God says, here I am. Here I am. Who does that? Who does that? What God does that? What God does that? It doesn't even make sense because he's kind on a level that I can't even understand. I can't even wrap my head around it. What John is saying in his gospel is he's saying, I saw him myself. I walked with him for three years. I lived with him. I saw him up close and personal, and I'm here to tell you, he is everything he says he is. He's God. That's the testimony of this gospel. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father. We talked about this last week, that we're all sons and daughters, but Jesus is the only begotten Son. We're all actually adopted sons and daughters into the family of God. But Jesus is the only begotten. He came directly from the Father. He was made out of the Father. My children are my begotten. They have my DNA inside of them. They're directly from me. That's how Jesus is related to the Father. We're a part of the family, but we're adopted. We're not begotten sons and daughters of God. So while we're at it, here's another concept that we can't understand since we're on a bit of a roll. Jesus was the begotten of the Father. He came from the Father. He has his origins in the Father, but he has always existed. He's always existed. Where did Jesus come from? The Father. When? Always. What? Seriously. He's God. Get used to feeling really small. Get used to feeling intellectually incompetent. He's God. He came from God. Where did Jesus begin? In the Father. When? Always. Always. Yep. That's it. There's no further explanation to give. So the idea is also this, that the doctrine of the Trinity means Jesus is the perfect representation of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is as much the Father as he is Jesus Christ. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says to Philip, he says, how how can you ask me to show you the Father? You've seen me. You've seen the Father if you've seen me. We are the same. He's not better, worse, kinder, less kind, more merciful. We are one. We are the same. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we see the Father, we'll be overwhelmed, but we will know him from knowing Jesus. We will know him from knowing the Holy Spirit. We'll know him because they are one goes on and it says, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's the gospel right there. Grace and truth. You see, Jesus didn't just come full of grace. Because if you don't understand why you need the grace, 
you have no need for it. You have no need for it. You ever had somebody come to you and say they forgive you for something you didn't even know that you did? And then you're grateful when that happens, but you didn't even know you needed forgiveness because you're blissfully unaware. So Jesus came full of truth. So the truth is Jesus is preaching, listen, you're, you're lost. You're lost. And sometimes we'd like to make Jesus out to be a guy who just walked around telling people self-affirming statements. You know, hey, I'm Jesus. I came here to tell you you're so beautiful. I came here to tell you you're really good at your work, even though your boss doesn't appreciate you. I came here to tell you that you can do anything you put your mind to. That Jesus just walked around affirming everybody, giving like the best hugs ever because he's Jesus, you know, and making blind people see and things like that. We kind of think like, oh, that's what Jesus did. He's just awesome all the time. Jesus came and said things like, hey, hey, if, if, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's a hard teaching right there. He says, hey, Jesus said things like, I've come to divide families. That's what I've come to do. I've come to turn the son against his father. That's what I've come to do. Many of you are going are to die in my name. You're going to have trouble. And remember, they didn't crucify Jesus for being a nice guy. They didn't crucify Jesus for healing people. They didn't crucify him for any of those reasons. They crucified him because he said he was the son of God. And he called people sinners who did not want to hear it. That's why they crucified Jesus. So Jesus came, and he came preaching the truth that we need salvation through him. The people he preached it to were the people who didn't get it. And the people that had amazing interactions with Jesus were the people who got it before he even said it. They showed up and they said, I know I need a Savior. That's why I'm here. Jesus says, okay, you're going to get something from me. So Jesus came full of this truth, and then he came full of grace. So he came saying, listen, world, you have a problem. There's a sin issue that sentenced you all to death, but I'm here to solve that problem at the expense of my own life. Here's the truth, and here's the solution. The solution is grace. That's the solution. Jesus came full of truth and full of grace. And in church and in life, if you go all with truth, nobody will ever like you because you'll just be like, hey, you're a sinner. You're a horrible person. Probably going to hell. Have an awesome one. That would be just just truth. But grace and truth would be like, hey, hey, listen, the reason your life is incomplete, the reason why you feel that way is because Jesus is missing from your life. And there's a barrier between you and God that you cannot fix. But the good news is that Jesus has fixed it through his own blood, through his own life. It's grace and truth together. Jesus came full of both. Full of both. Let's jump back to verse 10. Going back to verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I I don't know how you even, even read those verses and really take them in because the humility of Jesus is so extreme. It's almost unbearable. It's almost unbearable. When you really read what it's saying, you want to jump up and yell like, this is a travesty, this is blasphemy, and you don't because you realize that you're a part of that. You're a part of that. But this is what it's saying, saying Jesus was in the world. Which world? The world. The world that was made through 
Him. Through Him. Every grain of sand, every speck of dirt made through Him. He was in that world and the world didn't know Him. The world didn't know Him. Be like walking through the most beautiful art gallery in the world and the artist who did it all is right there. Nobody even knows that it's Him. Nobody even knows that it's Him. Times a billion. So Jesus is here and nobody even knows that it's Him. He could have been like, yeah, I made that tree. You want to know when it's going to die? I can tell you. You want to know exactly, you know, how many lemons are going to grow in there? I can tell you right now. I can tell you when you're going to start losing your hair. I can tell you how much hair you've got right now. He could, could have done any of that. But he made everything, literally everything. And, and, and he, he's conversing with people. He's answering questions from people that he created. Like they're questioning him. Like how do we know that you're God? He, he made them. And he's putting up with that question. How do we know you're God? How about I kill you right now? Then you'll know. How about I send down some fire and just burn you up? Then you'll know. You'll know. And Jesus just talks with people. And he answers their questions. And he puts up with all their ridiculous questioning of him being the son of God. From people that he made. People that he made. None of them deserved a second of his time. And we didn't even recognize him. In verse 11, we read that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so the first his own in that sentence refers to all of humanity, all of humanity. So he came to his own, all of humanity, his creation, and his own did not receive him. The second his own is talking about the nation of Israel, people of God. So he's just letting us know, get get this, Jesus came to the people he created on the earth. And he went to the subgroup of those people that he had divinely chosen and favored and protected and walked with and delivered. That's who he went to, and he wasn't received by either group. Didn't receive him. You didn't really receive him. His own people end up chanting for his crucifixion. And knowing all that, Jesus still calls them friends in his word. He still calls them friends. Who does that? Who does that? And so what is our response to be to this God who's become flesh and bone and dwelt amongst us? Verse 12, again, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So he came to the earth to make lost children, us, orphans, a part of his family. That's why he came to the earth. And I hope we never get over being in awe that he's done that for us. That, that, that he came down to a people he created and suffered and died at the hands of a people he created on a cross made from the wood of a tree that he created, that he called into being and said, grow now. I hope that we never forget and are never tired of rejoicing over the fact that he made us a part of his family. He should have come down to kill us all. That's what he should have done. If we want to talk logic, that's what he should have done. Gave us the earth, and we said, forget you, forget you, forget you. It's insurrection, it's treason, it's rebellion. And the Bible says we've all done it. But he doesn't come down to judge us like that. He comes down to give us grace and to make us a part of his family. That's his solution to the problem of sin. I hope we never stop talking about that and being amazed by that. 
But in order to become children of God, this is on your outline, in order to become children of God, we must personally and individually receive Jesus as God and believe in his name. When you understand how far he's gone to save us, how he humbled himself, you begin to understand how blasphemous it is for people to question whether or not he's a loving God. Doesn't it just blow your mind right now that this is a legit question that humanity has for God? How can you be a loving God if there's a hell? How can you be a loving God? He came down, suffered, and died at the hands of the beings that were at fault, at the hands of the ones who created the problem. He said, here's what you got to do. It's really hard. It's really difficult. You got to believe that I'm God, and you got to receive me as God. I know it's asking a lot. It's asking a lot, you know, but that's what I'm asking you to do. And then we turn around sometimes, and, and we say as people, how do we know he's a loving God? You, kid, you kidding me? You kidding me? That's the sort of stuff. Scrip- scripture says when we talk like that, literally the universe and creation is like shaking at the blasphemy of it. Because the whole universe is aware of God, and the universe is shaking because they're thinking he's going to lose it. He's going to lose it. He's just going to destroy everything. How can he put up with this? That's what goes on in creation. When we rebel against God and, and say things like, how do we know he's a loving God? How do we know he's a loving God? Because he said, all, all you got to do is receive me and believe it. That's what I'm asking you to do. That's what I'm asking you to do. We're the ones who've wronged him. When we believe in his name and we receive him, we're we're born again is what scripture calls it. In verse 13, it says that we become those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus is giving us three quick ways that we're not saved. John, as he's writing this, is giving us three ways that we're not saved. So he says, not of blood, so not from our family history. We're not saved because we were born into a Christian family. We're not saved because our grandma played the organ at church. And knew every song in the whole hymn book. We're not saved because we come from a culture that loves God. Or a mom and dad that love God. It doesn't save us. It's not because of any blood relation. And he's writing this to also let the Jews know. Hey, being a part of the nation of Israel doesn't mean you're automatically saved. You're not saved because of your heritage. He goes on. And he says, we're not saved by our family history. And then we're not saved by the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh. The will of the flesh is simply our works. He says, you're not saved by anything you do. There's no checklist. You can say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. When you've gone through the read a Bible in a year, Bible seven times, then you're good. There's no checklist. There's no works you do. Now contrast that with my kids. None of my kids are my kids because they fulfilled any criteria. None of them. It's not like you can go up to, you know, Luke who's four and he'll be like, yeah, I'm my dad's kid because I passed the test. You know, he's my kid because he's my kid. He's born into my family. So God says, listen, when you're born again spiritually, that's how you got into the family. You were born again spiritually. It wasn't because of anything that you did. You didn't get into this family by being good enough. Let me just take it one step further and say, if that's how you get into the family, why would you ever believe you could be kicked out of the family by not being good enough? That's what Paul talks about in Galatians when he says, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, will you now seek to be perfected in the flesh? And so he says, really, you were saved by grace, 
but, but now you're going to hold on to that grace by being a really good person? He says, you're never good enough. You're never good enough. You're saved by grace. You're sustained by grace. You're brought into the family by grace, and you are held in the family by grace. And then thirdly, it says the will of man, our will, our will. Very simply, we didn't choose God. He, he chose us. It wasn't my will. It was God's that made it happen. The Bible actually says in Romans 3 that no one seeks the Lord. No one seeks the Lord. Jesus said, I was found by those who did not seek me in Isaiah. Even, even those of us who think we were seeking God were only given that desire by God. We're only given that desire by God to seek him. The Bible says no one's righteous, no one seeks. And so this is another one of those things that, that blows our minds as we get into predestination and free will. And so we have John saying, listen, you're saved by believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus, but you're not saved because of any choice you make. Like what? Again, just it he says yeah yeah you have to choose to follow god but if you're choosing to follow god just remember god gave you the will to seek him he put the desire in your heart so you should probably thank him for it rather than telling jesus you're welcome i chose you you know (laughs) congratulations god's like so cute so cute this is what god is saying when we do that it's the grace and the goodness of god and you run into issues like well okay well well if he if he chooses people to be saved, Scripture also says that he desires that no one will perish. So how does that work? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I know he's God. I know he's good. I know he's gracious. I believe every word that's in his word. And that's what we hold on to. So how are we born again? We're born again of God, is what it says. He did it all for us. He gets, he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. And all, all the praise belongs to him. There's nothing that we've done. So what's, what's our contribution Our contribution to the salvation process? Believe in him as God and receive him as God. That's our contribution. So the picture that keeps coming to mind for me, and we're going to close with this, is, is Jesus comes t- knocking to your front door, knocks on your door. And now the question becomes when you open the door and you see it's Jesus, who are you going to receive him as? We receive him as a great teacher and say, hey, hey, come and sit down. I'd like to discuss your teachings with you. I have some ideas I'd like to bounce off you. Will you welcome him as a great teacher? Will you receive him as a life coach and say, Jesus, that's awesome. I was just thinking how I could use some advice on how to balance work and family. And you're full of good advice. So let's talk. Will you view Jesus as a life coach Will you view him as a God and be like, hey, Jesus, how's uh, Muhammad and Buddha doing? Say hi for me. Or will you open the door and say nothing because you can't believe that Jesus Christ, the almighty God, is knocking on your door. He's knocking on your door. Will you fall down and Cry out, Master, Master, come in. Make yourself at home. Move whatever you want to move. Throw out whatever you want to throw out. Paint the walls. Tear down walls. I don't care. Just stay. Please stay. Just stay. That's what it means to receive Jesus as God. We don't receive him as an equal. Say, grab a seat in my house. We just go... 
this is your house. This is your house. Do what you want to do. It's enough for me that you're just here. That you're here. That's what it means to receive him as God. This morning, I'm, I'm personally in awe of the number of things that we've been shown in the scripture that we, we can't even understand, we can't comprehend. There's so much of God that we can't grasp with this earthly body. And yet in, in his kindness and in his grace, God's given us the gift of faith. He's given us the gift of being able to believe in him. He's revealed to us things that are true that we don't even understand and he's enabled us to believe them. That's a gift. And so today the question for each of us is not, do you understand everything about Jesus? The question isn't, do you understand everything about how God works? Do you understand the Trinity? The question is, do you believe that Jesus is God? And have you received him in your life as God or something else? Is he God in your life or is he something else? Because he is God, whether we acknowledge it or not. He is God. And the Bible says one day every knee is going to bow. One day every tongue is going to confess. When he pulls back the curtain and he says, okay, you don't even need faith anymore. Let me show you who I am. But how much better it is to recognize now that he is God. He is God. Would you, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's just still our hearts before the Lord and let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And I want to ask that question first, is very simply, do you believe that he is God? Do you believe that he is God? Who is Jesus in your life right now? If we sat down and talked and started looking at your life, started looking at the things that God cares about, how would they show up in your life? Would we come to the conclusion that Jesus is God in your life, or would we come to the conclusion that he's something less than that? Maybe you need, you need to just repent this morning, because the truth is he, he's not been the center of your life. Maybe there's something you need to give up. There's something you need to change. Maybe he's bringing something to mind right now. Maybe you've just forgotten how great his love for you is and what he's really done for you.